0: Amen. And so now we come to the proclamation of God's word, and we're continuing through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 16. And as we continue through Matthew, just as a um, kind of give you a picture of what we're looking through as we're going through the next weeks, so I do plan to take a little break from it and go to the Gospel of Luke as we will be entering the Christmas season. Now, traditionally in the Reformed tradition, uh, we don't necessarily feel any obligation to go ahead and, and observe Christmas, but it doesn't hurt to take time to consider the incarnation of Christ and what it means that he came. So we'll be looking at the four songs of the Gospel of Luke, and I, I trust that will be a blessing as we enter into the Christmas season. Uh, but for the time being, for the next couple of weeks, we'll still be here in Matthew. So we are in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom so ends the reading of god's holy word let us pray father We ask now that you would, again, give us understanding and insight into the truths of your word. I pray, Father, that you would be with me, that your Holy Spirit would communicate the encouragement of the gospel to your people and to those who do not believe that the Holy Spirit would do his work of conviction and showing them the righteousness of the gospel and how they might be redeemed. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So nobody likes the idea of suffering, I think. Maybe there are some that do. But as humans, we're always looking for ways to ease or to end suffering in this world. We understand it is not our friend. We want a life without pain, without sorrow, without death. And rightly so, because that is a good thing. It's the kind of world that God had originally planned for humanity when he created all things. A life that lived in perfect harmony with him and with each other. And then we chose to rebel the sin against him, to break his holy law. And so the world was plunged into suffering, or as our confessions say, all the miseries of this life. And we are waiting then, with great hope, with great expectation, for the final redemption of all things. Because as we have seen, Christ's mission is to redeem not just his people, but this entire world back to himself. Death will be swallowed up forever in the victory of Christ's resurrection. But before that happens, there is suffering. In fact, there must be suffering. For you see, not only is suffering normal, but unfortunately it is also necessary. And that is hard to hear. That is a burden. But bear with me here. Because what unfolds in our text this morning shows us that Jesus indeed had to experience suffering in our place so that we can one day be free of all suffering. eternity. To put it another way, Jesus would suffer for his people so that they would receive the reward of his redemption that ends all suffering. And so the very first thing that Jesus shows us in his word here is the necessity of his suffering and his death. Here in verse 21, we immediately feel a wind of change in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's been confirming his claims that he is indeed the Messiah through his miracles. But we come now to verse 21 and we read this. From that time or from that very moment, Jesus began to show or reveal to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be Now, Jesus has alluded to his death before, but it's been kind of veiled. He hasn't revealed many details. It is here that he begins to unpack those details to his disciples about what is about to happen to him. And what are those details? Well, first we see he's going to go to Jerusalem. Now, they've been trying to avoid Jerusalem. They didn't want to go there. Jerusalem has been the very center of the opposition that has been hounding Christ throughout his earthly ministry. And we've seen in Matthew's Gospel that delegations of uh, priests and Pharisees and Sadducees have come from Jerusalem to try to find some error in Jesus' teaching, to, to catch him in some heresy so they could... Uh, disprove his words, make public shame of him, and bring him to trial. But from this point on, Jesus and his little band of disciples begin a journey southward towards that center of opposition, towards the city of Jerusalem, the city that had killed many a prophet who had dared to reveal the sins of the people and call them to repentance. Repentance. And so secondly, Jesus says, not only will he go to Jerusalem, but when he goes there, he will suffer many things. And of course, he will suffer physically. He will suffer beatings by the fists of the crowds. He will suffer the, the ragged whip of Roman authorities that will tear the flesh from his body. He will suffer verbal abuse by people who once adored and worshipped him and now call for his execution and mock him. He'll suffer rejection by his closest friends and family, being abandoned by them in his darkest of hours. And He would be left all alone to bear the suffering as it is poured out upon him. He would suffer, no doubt, emotionally, feeling the sting of that abandonment and being crushed by the weight of what he knew he had to do. As we see him praying in the garden, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And, of course, Jesus would also suffer spiritually which seems almost unthinkable. The Lord of glory, God himself, Emmanuel, he will suffer spiritually in great ways. He who never knew the shame of sin and the guilt it brings would take that condemnation upon himself in one shining moment upon the cross as he bears all the sins of his people. And every last drop of God's holy justice, God's holy wrath against all of our injustices and all of our anger and lust and envy and hatred and bitterness, all of that holy judgment of God is poured out upon him in that one moment, an eternity of judgment. So he would suffer many things. The third detail he reveals to them is not only is he going to suffer, but he will actually die. He would die upon a cross of wood, an execution that is reserved for the most hardened and bitter criminals. He would die as the guiltless one for the guilty ones, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy and perfect one for sinners. He, the creator of all things, would die For his creation, he the giver and the sustainer of life would taste the bitter flavor of death. But not all the details Jesus begins to unpack for his disciples are dark and discouraging because he gives them a ray of hope. He reveals that while he will suffer and while he will die, he will also rise from the dead on the third day. He gives them the hope of his resurrection, shining through all the clouds of his impending death. And so Jesus will go. He will go to Jerusalem. He will suffer. He will suffer at the hands of the authorities. He will even die. But he will rise again. And through that, he will accomplish the work he had come to do, that which he was born for the work of the long-awaited Christ. In fact, if Jesus didn't do these things, if he didn't suffer, if he didn't die, if he didn't rise the third day, he wouldn't be the Christ at all. His suffering and his death were absolutely necessary to complete the mission he came to do. That is why we read in verse 21 this very little word that Matthew gives us, must, Jesus must go, to Jerusalem. He must suffer, he must die, and he must rise again. There was no other option. The very act of redemption from sin and shame depends on Jesus doing these things. It's what makes him a savior. For you see, Jesus' cross leads to his crown. He had to bear the cross in order to wear the crown. But As we've observed many times over the past several weeks, people often want a different kind of Savior, a different kind of Jesus. And that is the case, once again, with Peter. This very same Peter, who just a few verses earlier had made that remarkable confession that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and For that confession, Peter is called a rock, part of the foundation upon which Christ will build his church. But when he hears Jesus saying, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but I will rise the third day, Peter acts very impulsively. He doesn't want to hear that. And so he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And the idea here is he didn't just tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, Jesus, wait a minute. What do you mean you're going to go die? No, he grabbed him by the shoulders and he turned him around and said, no, God be merciful to you. Or as he says here, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's an idiomatic expression. It literally means, may God be merciful to you so that these things never befall you. God's going to protect you from that. You are the Messiah, the anointed servant of the Lord, God in the flesh. This isn't going to happen to you. For Peter, it was unthinkable that Jesus would suffer and die. He wanted Christ to end all suffering and death. He wanted a Savior that would overcome all evil, but he did not want a Savior that would be overcome by that suffering and that evil. Peter wanted Jesus to wear the crown as the King of all kings without experiencing the cross, but that wasn't possible. Jesus had to first carry that cross before wearing the crown. As Paul explains to us very clearly in Philippians 2, he writes, and this is speaking of Jesus being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, and here's the crown. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So Jesus had to be humbled and suffer so that he would be given this name that is now above all earthly names. Now it is true, he has always been the eternal king of kings, but by suffering as he did, he seals the right to have every knee kneel before him, bow before him, and every tongue confess him as Lord. The cross makes his kingdom a reality, and it couldn't be any other way. And here's why that is. Because of human sin. All human sin, all guilt, all injustice, all shame, all rebellion against God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, must receive the justice or punishment it deserves. It has to be answered. God can't just leave it there. It had to be satisfied or paid for. The account had to be settled. In fact, if God ignored evil, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the Holy One. So somebody has to pay the price for all that sin, all my sin and all your sin. And that person, that somebody is either you and me or it will be Christ who is willing to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, to rise the third day so that he can save you From that fate, if you but rest upon him in faith and repentance. The cross before the crown was God's perfect will and plan for redemption. So much so that anything else, anything other than that, any other gospel, Jesus says, is satanic. He responds to Peter in verse 23 with very hard words. He, he turns to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> did, did, did Jesus just call Peter Satan? And that seems so uncharacteristic. And Peter is this beloved disciple, the rock, the one who had just been honored for his confession that Jesus was the Christ. So what is happening here? Well, what is happening is this. Jesus is being challenged, he is being tempted, he is being confronted once again by Satan through the words of Peter. And to understand that, we have to go way back to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we find Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And if you recall, Satan comes to Christ and he tempts him with three temptations. Jesus resists all of them through the word. And among those temptations, we find this. This is the very last temptation that Satan makes. The devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him... All the kingdoms of the world and their glory, all the power, all of this world. And he said to him, these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan is doing what? He is offering Jesus the kingdom or a crown without the cross. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you the kingdom right now if you just worship me me. But a crossless kingdom is no kingdom at all. And so Jesus responds with divine authority and he sends Satan away. You see, a crossless kingdom would be a kingdom without citizens. It would be a kingdom where God's wrath remained unsatisfied. A kingdom where the debt of sin is not paid for. A kingdom That was not part of God's plan. And Satan's goal has always been to subvert God's redemptive plan. He has always tried through subtle means, often what seems to be harmless ways, to thwart God's plans. And so Peter, who can't imagine that Jesus, the Christ, would have to submit himself to suffering and death, is used by the devil in another attempt to thwart that kingdom. He was being a hindrance or literally a stumbling block to the plans of God to redeem the people and bring salvation to sinners who turn to him. And so Jesus' response here to Peter isn't to defeat Peter, but actually is a grace because in responding to Peter, Jesus is once again showing that he has defeated Satan. Christ is delivering yet another blow against the kingdom of this world and its prince so that his kingdom the salvation of his kingdom might come to fruition. Jesus is overcoming evil in his response to Peter as the Lord of glory that he is, and he is doing that for the sake of Peter to save him and to save every disciple of his, including you and me. You know, it's easy for us as Christians even, To want to bring Christ's kingdom into reality because we, we, we love the promise that it is there. But to do it through our own way and forget that we need a suffering savior to make it happen. And when we do that, we're doing exactly what Peter was doing. We are setting our mind on man's thoughts, as he says here in our text, rather than God's. The end goal that we want is often right and true and good. The end of all injustice and the end of sin, the end of corruption, all good things. But the means of getting there is often wrong because we need a suffering Savior. Any gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection is not the gospel. It doesn't matter what you call it. Prosperity, social justice, good deeds, pious platitudes, all those other Gospels are not Jesus' Gospel. They're not God's thoughts. They're man's thoughts. And as Jesus says here, they are satanic. Jesus' cross was necessary, absolutely necessary, so that the crown could be Secured. And when he takes up that cross and rises the third day and then wears that crown, it is to secure for his people the reward of his suffer- suffering, which is what? It is our redemption. We are Jesus' inheritance. But what about his disciples? The last part of Matthew 16 presents for us another truth that is hard to hear. It is hard to hear that we need a suffering Savior, but this is the last thing we see here in Matthew 16, is that following Jesus means that we will have a cross to bear so that we might wear a crown of blessing as well. After his revelation that he would Need to take up the cross in order to win the crown, Jesus explains to his disciples that they too, if they are to be part of his kingdom, must also carry a cross in order to receive a crown. And so he says in verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If a person wants to follow Jesus, it involves two things repentance and faith. Or in the words of Jesus here, Denying oneself and carrying one's cross. And what does he mean by denying oneself? What does it mean to deny myself if I want to follow Jesus, if I want to be a Christian, a follower of Christ? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean necessarily that I must sell everything I have and give up all earthly comforts and live a life of poverty for the sake of the gospel. Now, denying myself might involve that, it may lead to that, but that's not what Jesus is actually getting at here. To deny myself does not mean that I uh, must play the part of the intentional martyr, putting myself in harm's way. Now, it may be that martyrdom is the result of following Christ, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Denial isn't like a diet where you're required to give up cookies or cake in order to gain something, or particularly lose something, to lose weight. Denial, very simply put, is repentance. It is utterly rejecting my sinfulness by acknowledging my guilt and my shame for what they truly are. Rebellion against a holy God. And then it is turning from them... To Christ, but nothing could be more countercultural when you think about it. Denying myself, acknowledging that by nature I am a sinful, rebellious person before a holy God—that is so countercultural. I mean, the narrative we hear in popular culture today is you find yourself by giving in to yourself, not denying yourself, not saying that you are a sinner. Not losing yourself, as Jesus talks about here. Instead, we're told, be yourself. You do you. Don't let anybody tell you how to think and feel. Do whatever feels good to you. That's who you are. Be whatever you want to be. And of course, that leads to all sorts of confusion and chaos and hurt and pain as people reject God's created order and follow the corrupted passions of their hearts. But Jesus is saying here, don't hold on to those passions. They're not going to help you. In fact, if you do, you will lose your life, your true life, your eternal life. Let go of them. Let go of who you are by nature. Let go of your self-piety and trying to please God through your own efforts. Let go of your own self-righteousness. It's not going to get you very far down the road anyhow. Deny yourself and take up your cross. That little phrase, taking up a cross, is probably one of the most misused parts of the Bible because people will oftentimes speak of it when they're talking about a difficult life situation, be it a physical disability uh, maybe a toxic, toxic job situation or painful relationship, and they'll, they'll speak of those as, well, those are my crosses to bear. No, that's not a, your cross to bear that Jesus is talking about here. So what does he mean when he talks about bearing a cross? What is this cross? Well, it's not a cross that we pick up, you notice. It's a cross that's given to the disciples. He's talking about a faith that continues through life, even unto death. A faith that is willing to give itself for Christ if called upon. In fact, in the immediate context, Jesus has very much in mind the idea of a real death for following Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that dying for Jesus is a guaranteed reality for every believer. In fact, I think it's safe to say that most of us will probably be spared that fate. Thankfully, we're blessed with religious freedom that many of our brothers and sisters throughout time and even in this present day could only dream of enjoying. But as R.T. France writes, discipleship, the life of following Christ, is a life of at least potential martyrdom. Jesus wants his followers to know that if they do follow him, it very well may cost them everything, even their own lives. As Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we ask the question then, well, why would anybody want to follow Jesus I mean if it means that I could potentially suffer that I could lose my life why would I do that well Jesus answers that for us verses 26 and 27 what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. So we, as humans, we're such shallow creatures, aren't we? We fret about things that are temporal, that do not last, the comforts and cares of this life. And when we do that, we so easily miss the bigger picture. We don't think of eternity You only see the temporal things. And yes, the body fails, the body dies, but the soul passes on. So what Jesus is saying here is, don't be just concerned with your present life. Look at the big picture. You are made for eternity. And will you spend that eternity in the joys of the kingdom, in the presence of God, or will you spend that eternity... In the wrath of God, in his judgment, because you refused the gospel, you refused Christ. When Jesus speaks of this coming of the Son of Man, he's talking about himself again, with angels in the glory of his Father, he's speaking of a future judgment, a future time when he, as the king, will act as judge. And he wants his disciples then to look beyond the moment that they were in and into the eternal. Because that is where their faith really matters. That is where a commitment to Christ that could lead to death becomes the most precious treasure in the world for a person to possess. Because the cross that they may need to carry will lead to To a crown of blessing that far outweighs anything they may suffer in the shadow of life. And so, what Jesus is calling for here is faithfulness. He says, Keep on believing. He's saying, Keep on trusting. Keep on resting in me. No matter how countercultural or dangerous that may be, keep on believing. Because for those who do, for those who continue in the faith, there is a reward, there is a crown that will be given. And how do we know that is true, though? I mean, if there only was some sort of guarantee that if and when I carry a cross for Christ that I will receive the blessing of a crown at the end, well, there is. We've seen it. The guarantee is Jesus himself Jesus took up the cross and he won the crown so that when you carry your cross, you will receive the crown of his blessing in him. In fact, we have a very present real-time mark of that guarantee right in front of us now. Notice what he says in verse 28 final words of this chapter. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about his authority as the exalted and risen Christ. He's saying to these particular disciples, Peter, James, John, he's saying, you guys, some of you, with the exception of one being Judas, will see the glory of the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, the risen Christ, the exalted Christ, he that has the crown, who has defeated death and Satan and hell forever. These disciples, Peter the rest, they would bear historical witness to Jesus as he carried his cross and suffered to him, but they would also, three days later, look into an empty tomb. They would also see the glorified and risen Jesus who had defeated suffering and death. They would put their fingers into the nail holes on his hands. They would sit and eat with him by the seaside once again. And they would watch him ascend to the Father's side, taking up the crown that is his. And it is with that same authority of the risen Christ that conquered death, the devil, and hell forever, that they would be sent by him to go forth and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, these disciples, they would see the kingdom grow. They would see the crown being formed after the cross. And what that means then is that if they are called upon to bear a cross for Christ, they can know that because their Savior has a crown, they will be blessed with theirs as well. Does carrying a cross really result in a crown of eternal life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is following Jesus, even if it means I must stand against the current culture, worth it? Indeed it is. Because there is a crown after the cross. And so you can bear the cross, whatever it may be, the cross of following him, and know that you will receive a crown of life because Christ carried his for you. We don't know what trials this life may bring. But we do know that no matter what happens, if we remain in Jesus, he will remain with us. And so Jesus' message to us through these words is simple. It's keep holding on. Keep holding on. And when you feel that your grip is beginning to loosen, cry out to him who carried a cross for you, and he will hold you fast. There is a crown that is coming after the cross, so keep believing, keep holding on. Father, we thank you for your word We're thankful for this truth that Jesus was willing to face the suffering of the cross to win the crown so that we might be redeemed. So that when we carry our cross, we too receive the crown of eternal life in him as we are united to him. Help us to remember these things as we go forth as your people into this world. And it feels like we are in a world that is so counter, so uh, against the truth of your word. Help us to remember that what we face is worth it, that our faith is worth it, that life is not all that we see before us, but is eternal, and that our faithfulness to Jesus will be rewarded by your grace. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.